Hi, welcome back to the horrors. Hey. <laughs> I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And it's fabulous to be here. So happy to be here with you, as always. You know what? How have you been? I'm doing. I'm also doing. I feel like I don't have very much to report, you know? Same. I just feel We're like drinking wine. We are drinking wine. I'm just trying to differentiate the days from one another because, oh, yeah. you know, day in, day out, it's work from home, and then sometimes there's snow, and then sometimes there's no snow. And then Yo, I made tomato soup last night for the first you time. Did? That's probably a, something pretty neato Toledo that I've uh, <laughs> accomplished recently. Hey, ask me about my soup. I never got tomato soup because to me it was just like spicy ketchup. I can see. Like hot, spicy ketchup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my tomato soup wasn't very spicy because I messed up a little bit. Like I didn't quite get my ratios right. But you know what? That's okay. It was my first time. It's first time for everything. And when you practice, you get better. Like me watching horror movies. Can you believe how far I've come? Yeah, we are on episode 14. Wow. And you've watched at least 14 <laughs> horror movies when you put it like that well actually if you think about puritan ladies that's like there was like three yeah but i had already seen some of those i still count it yeah you you guys you know what yeah take credit for this yeah i will thank you so anyway catch me watching over 20 horror movies in 2021 yeah it's no big deal i'm just doing what feels right i'm just challenging myself and pushing my limits you are and you're doing so well speaking of pushing limits yeah we're doing something a little bit different with this episode aren't we yes and good thing i brought up puritan ladies because this episode is kind of like puritan ladies where we're covering more than one movie in the episode but instead of three movies it's 30 30 movies to encompass 30 years 30 beautiful formative years from 1950 to 1979 so that's actually 29 years 29 years 29 beautiful formative years (laughs) that is three more years than no that is four yeah four more years than i've no how fuck <laughs> how old am i that is three more years than i've been alive are you, are you 26 i'm 26 oh i'm gonna be 27 soon if somebody literally was like no shannon's age or die I, right now i would have died <laughs> <laughs> evidently i would have too because i just went through a gamut of thinking i was 24 and then 25 <laughs> nah, nah bitch i'm 26 You're, here we are are you 26 i'm 25 Okay. 25. I always get confused. Yeah, I get confused as well. Because our birthdays are so close. They are, which makes you think that we're the same age, but but you're almost an entire year older than me. Yes, I'm about 11 months older than you. Yeah. Wow. Damn, that's crazy. Naughty. That's crazy cool. But as old or not old as I am, for the majority of these movies, actually all of these movies, I wasn't alive for any of them when they premiered. Yeah. And for some of these movies, our parents weren't even alive like the 50s and stuff oh i thought you meant i was like my parents were definitely alive in the 60s yeah 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 yeah, but not the 50s yo you're right so while shay is talking about these movies i'm also gonna be talking about some historical context because we all know that elise loves context i am a hoe for context 
So something I was really interested in when we started this podcast was seeing how women's fears were reflected or not reflected in major media, in this case, film at the time, and in this case, more specifically, horror movies at the time. So something that I was trying to do is just find some research about the kinds of movies that were out and then maybe what was going on with women's rights or women's history during that time period. So I ended up finding this really cool list by Rotten Tomatoes where they identify the best horror movie every year from 1920 to about what they said was the present, but it stops at around 2018 by our count. So what I thought would be really cool to do is take a chunk of these years and look at what movies were prevalent at that time and then look at the history and start seeing oh, well, maybe that had to do with that or that was a main fear because this was happening in society at that point. So the way we did it is Elise looked up some historical context and I looked at the movies and we're gonna just have like a cool conversation about what we each found and see where there's overlap. Exactly. And our research is primarily focused on Western culture, specifically in the United States. And since we're taking a look at media representations of women's fears, these are very much focused on like white women's experiences, especially spanning the years 1950 to 1979. So I think we're both hoping that when we do this second parter, we're going to have a lot more diversity in the kinds of movies that we're looking at. But this time around, again, just to be clear, we have a very sort of narrow focus that we are looking at. Right. And we're using this Rotten Tomatoes list just kind of as a guide. So I had some way to narrow down because obviously so many movies came out between the years that we're looking at today. But I just needed some way to kind of narrow down the ones that saw the most relevance or success during that time. So the way that we're going to do it is we decided to start at 1950 just because we're little 90s babies. So we just wanted to focus on some movies that we might have had a chance of seeing throughout the years. So we're going to start at 1950 and go up through 1979 today. And then in a future episode, we're going to go from 1980 to about 2018, just because we wanted to split it up so that we could have some deep, meaningful conversation about all of the things that were going on in that time. But like we said earlier, big disclaimer, it's a narrow focus. And we are also neither historians or experts on any of these topics. So this no. is two friends drinking wine and yep. just like shooting the shit over history and horror. Yeah, which we love. We do love that. And if you hear of any specific films that we mentioned today that you want us to cover, send us an email. Follow us on Instagram. Send us a DM. Please slide into our DMs. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And let's get started. Let's do it. Lego. So we're in the 1950s. What happened, Elise? I will let you know. My information comes largely from Wikipedia <laughs> and a an article titled, It Came from the 1950s, Popular Culture, Popular Anxieties, the European Journal of American Studies, uh, 2012, which is interesting. We said we're looking mostly at America, but this is European Journal. So we'll see what they have to say. This is a quote. The 1950s occupy a special place in American political, social, and cultural history as a time attesting that the 20th century was indeed, quote, the American century, a term famously coined by Henry Luce in 1941. The aftermath of World War II made it apparent that the U.S. was the new superpower, a new empire manifested through military and political hegemony and an equally hegemonic popular culture. This acknowledged superpower status brought about a new global awareness and dramatic domestic changes in the U.S. that have continuously attracted the attention of scholars from various fields. 
So basically, I wanted to start with this quote just to say shit was going down. Mm -hmm. You know, post-World War II life caused a lot of changes. And because America was seen as one of the celebrity countries of this war, they got a lot of clout from it. And its population kind of felt the aftermath of that, both in positive and negative ways. So let's kind of dive into this just a little bit more. So after World War II, we know that we had the baby boom. And there was a ton of new babies being born, a ton of new families that were seeking housing. And because of the housing crisis, the suburbs came to exist, which I never realized. Maybe I learned that in school, but I never realized that the suburbs came because of the baby boom in America. And a lot of white flight to just the idea that mm-hmm. these cities were seeing an influx of folks that were immigrating from other countries. And there was a lot of obvious cultural difference there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks that were able to fled the cities to the suburbs and were able to get housing loans and Mm -hmm. create the suburbs in that way. The effects of that housing crisis are still rampant today because families of color were denied these housing Mm -hmm. loans and white families were given to them. Mm -hmm. So that just kind of created this unequal market that still exists and affects education systems and Mm -hmm. things like till now. So yeah, housing crisis, white flight, lots of families moving into the suburbs. And because of this, because of the boom of families, the stereotypical nuclear family model began to rule American culture. I mean, there was the nuclear family preference before, but now it just seeped through American culture and advertisements, media, literature, all depictions centered around the idea of this perfect family. And actually, what I found really interesting was during the 1950s, the average marriage age dropped from 24 to 22 for men and from 21 to 20 for women. So it kind of demonstrated this rush to tie the knot to become of this quintessential idea of of being a mother or being a father, being in a family. Like people were rushing to do it to get it in. That's what success (laughs) (laughs) Well, that too. Yeah, literally. Well, yeah, that's exactly what societal success was, because at that point, you could go anywhere and get a job. Like, that kind of career wherewithal wasn't nearly as big of a deal as it is now. Like, the prestige that comes with a high-paying job, like, jobs were aplenty. So people were, I bet, seeking that success and their ability to, yeah, have their own house and pop out as many kids as possible and things of that nature. So that makes sense to me. So men having returned from war meant that women lost their jobs that they attained during World War II. And it meant that they were to return to, quote, traditional roles in the household. And since many families only had one car, if any car at this time, since we're still in the relatively early days of cars, a suburban wife would be stuck at home most days with the kids. And of course, women made use of their time by volunteering and such, But society at large still did not acknowledge women's intellectual equality to men. In the 1950s, we start to lay the groundwork for themes that become really popular and, you know, building blocks for what came to be the second feminist movement in the 60s and 70s, which is women being pigeonholed into certain roles where they were literally and figuratively stuck, (laughs) both in homes and in certain roles. And... We really see women in this age, historically, being these supports to men, being their sort of emotional support if they're dealing with any issues post-war, because, of course, we still aren't at a place medically where we're able to understand post-traumatic stress syndrome very well. 
course, World War II was highly traumatic, just like any war. So of course, there's going to be baggage that comes with that. But we're still also dealing with traditional masculine roles where talking about your feelings or seeking help the way we might be more comfortable doing today wasn't really a thing that you did. So women had to take care of the children, they had to take care of their husbands, and they had to do it all looking really fucking good all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, seriously. And that's also where we see kind of this influx of shopping, makeup, hair, all of these things tailored to women so that they could pay attention to those things while they were staying at home with the kids. Obviously, that's a generalization, but these things correlate in a lot of cases. Right. And how that is portrayed in the movies is very interesting. I'm so excited. Okay. So what I did to prepare for this is pretty much look at the horror movie titles and just kind of peruse their Wikipedia. A lot of these movies I'm at least familiar with, or if I haven't seen, I know the basic premise and the idea of. A lot of horror is reactive to what is going on shortly before it, right? Because we as a society are trying to process what is going on in the real world. So a couple of years later, you're seeing movies that are reflective of the trauma that societies are going through in that moment. I mean, we kind of even saw that with Host, where Host was able to be super on the ball about being very relevant to the times that we were going through, right? People are having a Zoom seance. So that's just a testament to the times that we live in that we're kind of able to be reflective in the moment and we're able to produce media and have media that processes what we're going through in the moment. But in the 1950s, obviously, it took, took a little bit of time. Yeah. So a lot of the 1950s is spent reacting to World War II. And this is primarily seen because if you look at the horror movies that rose to prominence, a lot of them were alien movies. Mm. And alien movies are typically or have commonly been used as a stand-in for foreign invaders, quote unquote. These people from other places that are coming in and trying to ruin our way of life or change the way we live or infect our communities, things of that nature. So obviously, like communism, (laughs) the Red Scare, obviously that's going to be pervasive for a while. But still, that fear of other people is definitely a thing that's happening. That totally correlates. McCarthyism began in the 1950s. Exactly. So that, of course, is going to be reflected through alien movies. So in 1951, you have The Thing from Another World, which is about a carnivorous plant alien that comes and just takes over a military outpost. Wow, that's pretty straightforward. Exactly. And then you have what I think is actually the most straightforward example, which is Them, which is a movie about ants that take over a New Mexican desert community. But if you think about it, ants, they live in colonies. But what they do have, too, is a queen. Oh. They have queens. Those are like their leaders. So Yeah, an ant colony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have these ants that have become gigantic through chemicals, presumably from the war, Mm. or like leftover from the war. They grow gigantic and they're taking over these communities and all these kind of things. But think about the ways that ants move. They move as units. They move like soldiers. They move Mm -hmm. in unison. That's very interesting. And it also feels like the idea that they might have been infected by toxins from the war kind of feels a little bit like environmental horror. Yeah. And we are going to be talking about that next week. Yes. 
after them, we have 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you heard our episode on the faculty, you know the plot line of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where alien plant spores come and they are able to generate an exact copy of another person and that the real person is hidden away while this alien person can assimilate to the physical characteristics and memories and just create duplicates that are devoid of all things that make us human. So emotion, individuality itself, all of those types of things. So the idea that these men can go away to war with these characteristics that make them human and they kind of come back as these shells of human beings because they are processing trauma and they are processing stress. And who does that impact the most? You just said it, the wife and the kids. Mm, mm -hmm. A lot of these earlier movies are seeing the attack or seeing the offensive. And in the late 1950s, we're starting to see the impact, the defensive. That's very interesting. And that continues with 1957's The Incredible Shrinking Man. So The Incredible Shrinking Man is about a guy who goes through a weird, intense fog. Like, <laughs> and, I, and I don't know, maybe there, maybe there was chemicals in the fog. We don't really oh. know. But after he goes through this fog, he just starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And you start to see a lot of toxic masculinity build up. And th- that's the thing. At the time, this would have just been seen as like any normal run-of-the-mill reaction. But essentially what ends up happening is he starts shrinking, he's confused, he's anxious, he doesn't know what to do. He becomes smaller than his wife physically, and he becomes, like, violent and angry toward her because he feels emasculated to the point where he runs off to the circus and gets with a sideshow performer who is a little person and stays with her until he's smaller than her and then runs back to his wife. That's fucking insane exactly and then this man just keeps shrinking and shrinking and he doesn't know why and he's going through all of these emotions he has a fight with the family cat to the point where he can fit outside the grain of a screen window (gasps) like he is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and while that's like the size of a baby octopus that's what did you know that a baby octopus is the size of half a grain of rice no Mm -hmm. that scares me when you're that little a baby octopus looks like a real octopus but just that small? Well, yeah. Well, if you could. Oh no, no, no! I thought you meant like a baby octopus like has eight tentacles. Oh, it just on a I very small. No, scale. like when they hatch. Yeah, most of them. Die. I'm not talking about this anymore. I learned this <laughs> fact. I literally learned this in like the second grade. I don't even know if this is still true. I just still say it. It's like well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I saw. I'm like- gonna Google it. Oh my god! I saw that YouTube video of like that octopus being able to fit through like a crack of a window. On, on like a sea boat. Have you seen that before? Yes. After that, I just, I, I keep octopi out of my mind as much as possible because it just scares me that something with so little anatomy can have that much power. Oh, it, yeah, it definitely is really scary. Oh, octopus babies are about the size of a pea. So not a grain of rice. Wait, a newborn octopus oh, no. is about the size of a flea. Well, shit. Anyway, so this man was the size of a flea. A flea within a box. <laughs> and a box within another box. <laughs> and I could smash it with a hammer. <laughs> and we're back. Let's do the Emperor's New Groove yeah, next week. Yeah, let's okay. talk about the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> that, that was a deep cut. But anyway... While he is this small and fending off the family cat, he sees his brother and his wife, and his brother is helping her pack the house up. But from what I understand, it's a little maybe hint that the brother's now involved. Sexual. 
So obviously this man is going through some traumatic straits to the fact that like he's losing his bodily autonomy and I don't think I would like to be the size of a flea. I'm a small individual by nature, but not the size of a flea. So that's obviously very traumatic. But thinking about how his wife is really carry the burden of his emotional Mm. downfall, right? Like she says, I'm going to stay with you even if you're small. But he's like, no, fuck you. I'm smaller than you and I don't feel like a man anymore. So Mm. I'm going to go find a woman. I'm taller than still. Interesting. You know? Right. That is very interesting. It's very reactionary. Yeah, it's the, I'm six foot, but actually five eight of the 1950s. I'm also wondering if it sort of reflects not only the aftermath of World War II as in a traumatic sense, but also in a, what am I supposed to do with my manhood now? I mean, the Korean War, I believe, is going on at this time, but, you know, that's nowhere near the caliber of World War II. And it was seen very differently to the public eye as opposed to World War II. And I'm wondering if it just kind of reflects a metaphorical loss of a sense of agency. And we see that as, you know, the depiction of a man who literally shrinks. Yeah. And that is continued in 1958's The Fly. Mm. We have Jeffrey Goldblum. We have Mariska Harkatay. Well, that's in the 80s version. Oh, he's in the 80s version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you might be more familiar. I'm more familiar with the remake. Yes. Either way, not Jeffrey Goldblum. Not How yet. old did I think that Jeffrey Goldblum was? That man was playing an Uncle Jesse in Jurassic Park in the 90s. <laughs> How old did I think this man was? He's timeless. I'm sure he is. Either way, The Fly is about a scientist who, through some experimentation, I think he's trying to do some time travel or he's trying to do some matter shifting. I haven't watched the movie in a while, but either way, he does an experiment where he accidentally gets his DNA crossed with a fly because a fly is in the room when he's doing what he's doing and his atoms and his being get intermixed with the flies. Over time, after this experiment, he starts disintegrating and he starts turning into a man-sized fly. Wait, can I just say, so I was doing presentations today with my students on certain Emily Dickinson poems, Mm -hmm. and a group went who did I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died, and a student informed me that flies are very often associated with death, and I'm interested in this choice of a fly not only as a non-human entity but as something connected with death so symbolically yeah like it could have been the bee yeah or the moth yeah but it wasn't it was the fly yeah i mean because anytime you see anything dead you always see like flies or or maggots you know surrounding it i was thinking kafka I thought that's where oh. I thought that's where you were going with that. No, but we could go there as well. When was it's like that? an existential crisis? When was the Metamorphosis written? 1915. 1915. So it looks like right around the time of World War One. Actually, this seems like another post-war reaction. But yes, Metamorphosis is about a man who turns into a cockroach, and the fly is about a man who turns into a fly. What's pertinent about this is you're seeing a lot of bodily disintegration. So in the shrinking man, like you're seeing almost a shrinkage of manhood, (laughs) a shrinkage of manhood (laughs) in the sense that he is becoming so small that he is almost undetectable. But in the fly, it creates like a fly-human hybrid where he's not even human anymore. He's turning into another worldly being. He's turning into something non-human. And This could be an effect on the amount of the chemical reactions that happened with World War II. Like, 
But so, we could also think about the chemical warfare of World War One, Right. Or I'm even thinking of just about like nuclear waves of World War Two. Yeah. I mean, in the 50s, we're in the Cold War right now. Yeah. Nuclear wave. That's a very popular um, fear. Right. So even thinking about like the nuclear impacts that's having on health, you're watching men deteriorate. You're watching men get sick. And this movie had a resurgence in the 80s. And I'm, I'm sure I'll touch on this when we cover that. But when it was remade in the 80s, a lot of folks were saying that it was very timely because the AIDS crisis was surging in the 80s. Mm. So watching men kind of deteriorate before your eyes into oh. something that doesn't even like resemble who they once were wow. is very powerful. Right. And obviously, AIDS wasn't in prominence in culture in the 50s quite yet, but you are seeing kind of like the physical manifestations of all of that post-traumatic stress and all of that health deterioration. And that's another thing is his wife is really left to clean up the mess. His wife, while he's turning into a fucking bug, is trying to find a way to reverse it Mm. and really just carrying that trauma and carrying that grief about first of all like having the responsibility on her shoulders to save her husband but also watching her husband turn into someone who she doesn't know him as which is what i'm sure a lot of women who were able to welcome the men in their life home kind of saw wow that's so interesting some other movies in the 50s kind of highlight that first stereotype that you highlighted where it's just like the woman is the homemaker right off the bat 1950 The movie is just about a rich man that kills his maid because he was sexually attracted to her and she rebuffed his advances. And the rest of the movie is just about him hiding her body and trying to absolve himself of responsibility. So the woman in that movie plays just the role to be the homemaker. She was home and that's why that happened. You also have The Night of the Hunter in 1955, and that is about a serial killer who seduces a widow that was left with a $10,000 inheritance from her husband who recently died. And it's about the serial killer who's really just trying to gain this financial security through marriage to her. And even when he does succeed in killing her, he spends a lot of time disparaging her to the church because the serial killer happens to be a minister, <laughs> and he tries to, <laughs> and he tries to convince the community that she chose a life of sin and left her kids behind and just ran with the money. Wow. I feel like those two movie plots so beautifully cross between modern horror movies and kind of like slasher films, women being brutalized. Maybe not so much modern, modern, but like what we see in the 1960s and 70s, but also even older depictions of women in like Edgar Allan Poe or even in murder stories, you know, when we hear about Jack the Ripper or things like that. Speaking of the 60s. Yeah, let's get to it. Yeah, let's get to it. Let's move on. We're going to see some things that are sort of similar trends to what we saw in the 50s and also some things that start to change. So I'm going to start with a quote. The 1960s was a new era for Hollywood when the studio system broke in and a catalog of filmmakers breaking through with European-inspired cinema. Along with industry changes, the America of the 60s had rising tensions overseas and at home in regards to the Cold War, Vietnam War, and civil rights movement. These issues leaked into America's cinema, specifically the horror genre. And that is from The Psychological to the Supernatural Horror in the 1960s by Caitlin Chappell. 
so here are the themes that we talked about. Yeah. That continue. So again, we have the Vietnam War, we have the Cold War, okay, and we also have the Civil Rights Movement, which also began in the 1950s. Like we saw Brown versus Board of Education passed in 1954. There was a lot of civil unrest, which we also might be able to tie to the sort of alien invader theme. Like not only people from other countries were depicted as such, but we could even consider our own fellow Americans being depicted as such, which is really eerie. So themes we talked about, we start kind of seeing a break from this passive male deterioration to a much more overt male deterioration where we see a lot more punishing of women. We are seeing a supernatural trend start to come over the horizon. We see a focus on women becoming actual protagonists in some films as well as the victims. We start to see environmental fears coming and a focus on bodily autonomy. So women's sexuality, men overpowering women, and so on. And I actually have two more quotes. So this is an addition from Caitlin Chappell's article that I already quoted. This is interesting, and I'm curious to see if you have anything ready to talk about on these subjects. So here's a quote. So voyeurism was prominent during this time, as seen in the 1960 film Peeping Tom, which is about a man who films the deaths of the women he kills. Is that on your list? It's not on this list, but only because the 1960 movie is Is, such a blockbuster. And that's why Peeping Tom probably got moved over. But the 1960 movie does include voyeurism. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this could be tied to the paranoia within America and specifically the film industry post-McCarthy era, which makes sense because a lot of artists and filmmakers and writers were targeted as quote-unquote communists during the McCarthyism era. So films could be reflective of what filmmakers and actors were going through at that time as well. And there was also a fascination with exploiting the trauma of women, as seen in the two films mentioned above, as well as Roman Polanski's Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby, which I know we're probably going to talk about. So in the case of Polanski, who is a convicted child rapist, and Hitchcock, who sexually harassed actress Tippi Hedren on set, this could be a reflection of the dark reality of Hollywood. These more scandalous subjects could also be accredited to the fact that the Hayes Code, which restricted depictions of queer and female sexuality, began to loosen up in the 60s with a disregard for what was considered, quote, morally acceptable. More sexualized depictions of women made their way to mainstream films, specifically horror movies. Yeah, wow, there's a lot there. Yeah, let's just start at 1960 and we're going to see. So 1960's movie is Psycho. From Alfred Hitchcock. Even I've seen that. So that's why Peeping Tom probably didn't get the props it deserved in this list, just because Psycho is such a phenomenon. But in Psycho, you see the owner of a motel, Norman Bates, who is very suspicious of one of his tenants, Marion Crane. And Marion Crane is a thief. She's an embezzler. And everyone knows that famous shower scene where you get that point of view shot and then they open the shower curtain and Marion Crane is killed through the knife stabs. And granted, you know, it's 1960s. They use chocolate syrup as the blood. It's it's a different time. <laughs> but you're still seeing that voyeurism because up until that point, Norman Bates is watching her. The hole in the hotel wall, right? Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So you are seeing her like coded as like a devious almost like sexual being like she has a boyfriend she's doing these crimes whereas norman 
And there's obviously like a lot of opinions about the gender representation, the Mm -hmm. fact that Mm -hmm. Norman takes on the persona of his mother when he is killing women because of his mother's deep-seated misogyny. And he has some sort of psyche that envelops that in his mental illness. But you're still seeing that type of punishment. And it's even more interesting if you are coding Norman Bates's mother as her own character, that's still like woman against woman and showing and showing some of that like internalized misogyny in that sense too and you even see that in 1963 if we're jumping to the next hitchcock film on the list the birds tippy hedron reports having not a good time on set Mm. because they use real birds oh my god they did oh yeah oh yeah they they train birds (laughs) to attack people yeah oh that's crazy You're seeing that. And that's an interesting movie because it's one of the first times in a horror movie we see the protagonist being a woman. You're seeing Melanie's character taking like the lead role and you're seeing her flirting and not necessarily like having a partner yet, but just kind of like toying with the idea. And then all of a sudden these birds come down and attack and it seems so random. But what was Hitchcock thinking? Like in his first premiere horror movie, the woman is a victim. But in this one, she's more empowered, but still receives a lot of punishment for what she goes through. Like that's definitely a transition out of what we're seeing in the 50s, mostly. And then I didn't know Polanski directed Repulsion. But that makes just a lot of fucking sense Mm. now that it makes me feel a little gross just kind of talking about it because Repulsion is a very interesting movie that came out in 1965 and that movie follows a woman named Carol. She has a lot of nightmarish experiences. She lives alone in her apartment and the film takes her point of view, but what you're told is that point of view isn't reliable because she has these vivid nightmares and hallucinations of her going through sexual assault and rape and a lot of other hellish things. And it's about her repulsion toward sexuality in general, where she has this man that's vying for her affection, but she is caught up whether she's processing trauma or whether she's just coded to be seen as mentally ill. And is she mentally ill because she doesn't want to fuck? Like, what is Polanski trying to do here? That that isn't new because of Roman Polanski. Like, that is such a theme throughout literature. Like, for example, in my grad class right now, we just finished reading Jane Eyre. And Bertha, the famous woman who has been stuck in the attic for 10 years, is coded to be a promiscuous woman. And we're kind of left to wonder, well, is she really insane as she's written to be? Or was she just a woman who was louder than she should have been, more promiscuous than she should have been? And then, of course, there's so many other theories we could get into. But I mean, that book was written in the 1800s. And so we see that throughout the years. And now we're seeing it depicted in American horror films. It's also interesting when you look at other movies in this decade. And a lot of the plot point is based on the point of view that men have to women. So in 1962, there's a movie Eyes Without a Face. And this movie... I mean, and you said earlier that obviously this is a time where Hollywood is really focused on women's looks. And Eyes Without a Face is about this plastic surgeon whose daughter is in a car wreck and ends up warping her face. She has a lot of like facial trauma, so she doesn't have a quote unquote beautiful face that he's Mm -hmm. used to. So he gets into the business of killing women so he can steal their faces to give to his daughter and make her beautiful again. That is so 
dark. I had no idea the 60s were so dark. It's just the idea that even in the movie, the daughter, the person who went through this trauma is like, I don't want this. I don't want to do this. But this father is convinced that her role is to be beautiful so she can get married and she can be a mother and she can achieve that level of success. And if she doesn't, then she's a failure. You know what? That is or she's unlovable. so true. Yes. Yes. Because at that time, that is what would have made her, quote unquote, successful in the eyes of society. Her face, her fucking face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to see that. I think we should cover that. I think so, too. So then moving up in the decade, we start with Psycho and then we go to Eyes Without a Face and the birds and then Repulsion. And then in 1966, we have Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which is one of the many sequels to the original Dracula. There's so (laughs) many. There's a whole Dracula universe at this point. But that covers four English tourists that go and visit Dracula's castle against the advice of the locals. Always against the advice of the locals. And it's about Dracula kind of picking them off one by one. But of course, his first victim is a beautiful woman named Helen. And I find it interesting in this sense, by nature of a vampire, once you're bitten, you become a vampire. So it turns her into a very aggressive... Like, I don't think it's coded specifically sexually. Again, we haven't watched all of these movies. So if you've seen this movie and you're like, Shannon, what the fuck are you talking about? She's obviously like a horror in that. No, like, I haven't watched all of these movies. I'm going by the Wikipedia summaries. Come for me later. But it's coded that she is going after her own friends, that she is not who she was. She can't be trusted. She tries to initiate and bite her other friends. Like, she becomes this sexual deviant. And I don't know what when this movie came out, but I was watching a documentary about horror and things of that nature. And one of the earliest lesbian representations in film was called Dracula's Daughter. And it was about a woman vampire who goes in to bite another woman's neck and is seducing her and is doing all those things. And it's one of the earliest representations of queerness in horror and it's in the dracula universe so i bring that up to kind of set the scene that usually vampires elicit seduction to be able to turn their victims and the fact that dracula was able to turn a woman and then by nature she goes after her friends is just kind of talking about that idea of you know, once you have sex, you're a horror or you're you're kind of brandished in this different light at that time, especially if you're talking the 60s. Damn. Also, that sounds so Jennifer's body. Oh, yeah. Like she's bitten. Mm-hmm. She becomes a sexual deviant. Yeah. She's eating boys. She's a- eating boys and trying to bite her friends successfully biting yeah, her friends? Yeah, she's trying and succeeding to bite her friends. <laughs> Damn, that's crazy. And that's the thing. Vampires, too, throughout history have always been the most sexually fluid of the monsters in terms of gender and queerness. Like, there's been a lot of ties between vampirism and... Why do you think that is? Is it because of the neck? I think it's inherently sexual. Fluids. Sure. And there's also a lot to be said about how vampire movies were very popular during the AIDS crisis, again, because of the idea of bad blood. So the depictions of that blood and the changing of blood and and spreading this virus and spreading this condition and this, this terminal condition that you die from and you're undead and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of a way to paint queerness like, it's evil, but, you know, we've all watched True Blood. It's it's kind of rad. I haven't watched True Blood. True Blood's cool. Vampire Diaries cool. Yeah. 
Twilight, sure. But like crazy. So like even at this time, this version of Dracula might not necessarily have been coded as sexual as we know vampires to be today. Like that association might be more recent than I realize. But that's the thing. I think Dracula's daughter came out in like the 20s. Whoa. We should do 36, 1936. <gasps> we should do a fucking vampire episode. I'd love to do a vampire episode. Oh. My God, buckle your seatbelts, y'all. We're going to do a vampire episode. I don't know when. So then in 1967, we have the Sorcerers. And the Sorcerers is about hypnotists and his wife, Estelle, who are trying to figure out ways to control other people's minds. Ah! And they get a volunteer and through their experimentation, it works. And they're able to confirm that when this man named John feels and experiences things that Estelle and the hypnotist also feel and experience things and they're able to influence him. So the movie is about them kind of urging John to do like more and more risky things. And even eventually the hypnotist is like, I don't want to do this. But Estelle is really taking over and really liking the power of being able to like experience new things and navigate the world as a man to the point where it starts pushing boundaries and getting a little evil. Just this idea of the complete role reversal of a woman being able to be in the driver's seat of a man and do what she wants because she has that power and she has that privilege. And a lot of it is the fact that he's going out to clubs at night by himself. And like, women can't even really do that now. But then she goes a little overboard and has a little bit of a power trip. And she kind of turns into this evil force. Like, she's the bad person in the movie. Hmm. So in the 60s, we see women as the victim. We see them as the hero. And we also see them as the villain. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's followed by 1968, Rosemary's Baby. Yes. And Rosemary's Baby is significant in a lot of ways, in the sense that you really are seeing this question of bodily autonomy happen, because Rosemary's Baby, Mia Farrow, she is impregnated with the spawn of Satan, and everybody she knows is in on it. Her husband's in on it, her neighbors are in on it, her healthcare provider is in on it. She is just being used essentially as this vessel and she is left with the horror and she is like not given a choice. And again, just like we talked about with Jennifer's body last week, her husband does this to advance his career. He wants to be an actor and he makes a deal with the devil for his firstborn, essentially, so that he can gain success and notoriety and live his dreams, but at his wife's expense. That is very cringy. I want to see that, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it is very sexually assaulty. There's a scene that's very uncomfortable about it. And again, it's just that idea of loss of agency. But I think this was gearing up toward some things that were happening in the 70s around reproductive rights, because this movie was very on the nose for its time when women were petitioning for a choice over their ability to terminate a pregnancy or to receive an abortion. So this movie was very out there and very relevant to the conversation and the dialogue that was happening around what happens when a woman doesn't have a choice to her own body. Mm-hmm. And on that note, we can go into talking about the 70s. I, I really think Rosemary's Baby is the perfect preface for that. Because in the 70s, and this is where my research becomes a little bit less because I start to kind of, you know, just remember more. And honestly, a lot of what I know comes from <laughs> Mrs. America starring Kate Blanchett. That was on Hulu or Amazon, I think, in the fall. Anyway, so that is a show obviously fictionalized in a lot of ways, but it depicts a lot of what was going on in the 1970s with the second wave of feminism. So Gloria Steinem, 
We have the author of The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan, and a lot of things going on. And this is where we really see the women's movement start to take strides. So this is when the ERA movement is taking place, Equal Rights Amendment. You know, we're trying to get this passed. We're trying to get it passed on a state level. This is where we also have Roe versus Wade passed by the Supreme Court in 1970. I see 73 sometimes. I see 74 sometimes. But again, legalizing abortion in the first trimester, that's a big event. We're also seeing, you know, publication of women's magazines like Ms. and women's art magazines coming on the scene. So women are really the topic of conversation. Um, 1975 is deemed women's year in America because, you know, so many things are going on. We're really seeing a lot of women take action. Women's marches, women's benefits. It's just everywhere. And yet we're also seeing this interesting contrast between all of these advancements being made by women for women and also, of course, allies as well. There are also men involved and other people involved. We also see this wild spike of serial killers, right? And partially this is because of rising criminal psychology, where we are starting to be given terms like serial killer and people are starting to spend time studying people like this. But also, while women are gaining bodily autonomy and autonomy in other ways, we're also seeing women depicted in the media as total victims of literal murder, like not even in horror films, but in reality. And the 1970s has a ton of serial killers. Okay, so in an article titled Notorious Killers of the 1970s from CNN, it lists some very prominent serial killers at this time. So we have the Manson family, the Zodiac Killer, who was never found. We have John Wayne Gacy. The Zodiac Killer went to Mexico last week. What are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, Texas was too cold for him, so he just flew to Mexico. What the fuck are you talking about? Ted Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Never mind, y'all. The Zodiac Killer has been found. We have Ted Bundy. We have David Berkowitz. We have the Hillside Strangler. Jim Jones was also a thing, even though that was like a culty situation going on, not necessarily targeting just women. And also Elvis died. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, No, wait. Maybe he didn't die in the 70s. But anyway, the point is a lot of notorious serial killers targeting women, not just to kill them, but also to rape and mutilate and totally defile them. You know, this is certainly sparking fear. And especially in the horror genre, which depicts murder and rape and these really heavy, scary things, it's absolutely terrifying to see real things like that happening in real life. So I think that that, in a way, is where maybe the true crime movement really started to take root. Shay and I both listened to My Favorite Murder. And ever since I started listening to that, I just, I tell anybody who will listen, I don't know how anybody made it through the 70s. -hmm. I do not know. It sounds wild and crazy. And the serial killers that I mentioned are only the tip of the iceberg, right? Like there's so many more. Also in the 60s and also in the 80s and also beyond. So yeah, that's a little bit about what's going on in the 70s. Well, there isn't a shortage of serial killers in movies, and there's also an emergence of some really classic horror movies that happened in the 70s. Most notably, 1972's Last House on the Left, and that has a lot to do with a lot of that sexual violence that you just talked about. Last House on the Left is an exploitation film, so you're seeing two young women who are taken into the woods by a gang and sodomized, raped, mutilated, shot. In the 70s? Yeah. Damn! And it's really just about the parents taking vengeance on these gang members. 
that might be speaking to the impact that was left after all of these women disappeared and all these women were were taken is just like, what is the family left with? A lot of this anger, a lot of this brutality that they have to sit with and they have to deal with. And Last House on the Left, I mean, it's not a movie for everybody. It's very graphic. It's very upsetting. Interesting. And again, like, that's the thing. Horror movies aren't meant to exploit the real violence that's happening in the world. In a way, it can provide catharsis, knowing that, you know, as women, we navigate the world in a different way. You know, we have like unwritten rules that we have to follow. I mean, we all know this. It's just like, Mm -hmm. don't walk alone at night, always park under a streetlight, put your Mm -hmm. keys between your knuckles, all that kind of stuff. And in this case, like this is the beginning of rules that have been ingrained into us when we were kids, but that, that was not the case. Yeah. And also, I think like the media taking these things and making them so prevalent every day, headlines every day, newscasts every day, every day, every day. I mean, that's something to certainly consider because one could argue, well, this is such a small percent. But at the same time, if it's in your face all the time on the news, it's going to affect you differently. Jump ahead to 1974's classic the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't think, I don't think I'll ever be able to do it. I think you can. Really? I, I do think you can. I don't know. I think it's it's just a classic and I feel like we're going to have to cover okay, it fine. at some point. <sighs> but literally about a family of cannibals and Leatherface, who is the main antagonist in that movie, he like skins women. He keeps their skins. He wears, wears other people's skins on their faces. It's not so much the sexual violence in this movie as it is bodily violence. At one point, Leatherface takes a woman and hangs her up on like a meat hook. <gasps> so it's, again, that loss of bodily autonomy, violence for the sake of violence, this level of brutality. And then the idea of consuming human flesh. I mean, we all can't be Army Hammer, right? Like the oh. <laughs> like the idea of just not only violating a woman, but consuming a woman. Like the level of consent or lack thereof is so it really does far out of reach. Take it to that level. That's wow. That wow. Obviously, like that's putting everything very lightly. There's a lot more that I could say about that movie, but I kind of want to save it because I want to cover it at some point. But there's a reason that the movie's as culturally significant as it is. 1975, we moved to Jaws, and Jaws is very unique. And a lot of people don't consider Jaws a horror movie. Would you consider Jaws a horror movie? I think so. I think it's scary as hell. I've never seen it because I'm terrified. We're back to that creature feature theme. Right, you're right. And that's the thing. The motivations for this one, it's a little wishy-washy because it's Mm. just like... This movie broke a lot of records in the sense of, like, it was a summer release. Horror movies weren't released in the summer. Mm. It made people afraid to go to the beach in the same way that The Exorcist made people afraid to... Go to church. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, made people afraid to not go to church. (laughs) I mean, there's not a lot of women in this movie to begin with. It's about a professional shark hunter and a marine biologist trying to kill a mega shark. It's like an action film. But still, it's bringing horror to vacation it's bringing horror to this nuclear family that you know what do people do at least around here every summer they go down the shore yeah they do these things they have this like complacency and this sense of comfort so it's disturbing that sense of comfort it's bringing the terror to your shoreline it's pretty rude (laughs) it's it's also pretty rude that people think that sharks kill as many people as they do a year yeah vending machines kill more people a year than sharks do so that's wild exactly Don't be hating on sharks, people. And be careful around vending machines. Exactly. (laughs) That was good. Exactly. 
1976, we have another one that we're absolutely going to cover eventually, which is Carrie. Oh, yes! And Carrie is obviously about a telekinetic 16-year-old who takes revenge on her bullies at her school prom and takes revenge on her very fanatically religious mother toward the end of the film. But what's interesting about this movie is we have Sissy Spacek in the starring role, which is really great, but you also have the main antagonists being women. You have the mother being very imposing upon her values and very punishing of her burgeoning puberty and sexuality and then you also have the bullies and most of the bullies are women you have men that play a role but in terms of the main antagonist it's women against women i have to connect it back to mrs america again because i feel like based on that show and and sort of some of the reading that i've done about that era the era the equal rights amendment and also the feminist movement really in a lot of ways pitted woman against woman. It was like, you're either a woman who believes in feminism or you're a woman who wants to be more traditional. But I'm thinking that in Carrie, having women pitted against women is really telling of the time. Like there were women pitted against women more so than usual because one of the most important social changes happening at that time had to do with women and put women at the forefront of politics for one of the very first times. And reproduction. Exactly. And you're seeing like the main course of events occurring because Carrie gets her period. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ginger snaps vibes. Ginger Jennifer's snaps body vibes. vibes. Jennifer's body. Periods are fucking dangerous. You get your period and all of a sudden you have to choose you with your girls or you with your guys. If we're looking at this from a heteronormative standpoint. Exactly. You wake up and you choose violence. That is so interesting. Okay. How many times can I say that is so interesting? I should start taking a shot for every time I say it. Then I'll shut the fuck mm, up. <laughs> 1977, we have Suspiria, which we're going to cover. We are going to cover very soon, actually. And that is about a covet of witches who have a supernatural conspiracy in a German dance academy. Love to see it. What I think is interesting about this is it's an American ballet student who is going to a school in Germany. Mm. So Germany. <gasps> oh, What does that represent? You know, what is that reacting to? Like That's very interesting because I also feel like, you know, there's the stereotype that Europe is much more body positive and body free than Americans because of our Puritan roots and how we have clung to those over the years, as we know from our Puritan ladies episode. So I'm thinking like German, do we connect that back to World War II perhaps? Or German, do we connect that to the very European ideology surrounding women and women's bodies? And I don't really know those too well because I'm not from Europe, but I do know that that stereotype exists that Americans are prudes. 1978, we have a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So again, we're talking about these identical copies, these aliens who look like us. So we're still like questioning that bodily autonomy. And then you get to 1979 and you have Alien with Sigourney Weaver. And this is the movie I think that Elise wants to watch the least with me. And I'm so excited to watch. Mostly because this movie's sexual as fuck. It's saying a lot about reproduction. It's saying a lot about genitalia. It's saying a lot about consent. It's about humans that are on their way back from exploring other planets aboard the Nostromo. And they have these eggs. They're, They're trying to harvest other life and they're seeing what's going on. And one bursts and all hell breaks loose. 
I can't stand that. I cannot stand it. Look, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. But I will not like it. I remember like my childhood, and I think I mentioned this before, I cannot count the times I walked into the family room at the wrong moment when my brother and my dad were watching a horrible scary movie. And I saw like the worst part of the movie and that's it. Like no storyline, just like the worst part. Alien is one of those movies. I remember walking in the room and looking at the screen just to see what was on and fucking something was coming out of some guy's fucking gut, dude. And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. And I know that that's Alien because what else would it be? I mean, that's the thing. You have these face huggers that look like big vaginas that latch onto your face and push eggs down your throat to oh where God, you become incubators for these other little aliens. And then you have xenomorphs that look like big dicks walking around. And then you just have the idea of there's eggs on the ship. It's not that I mind vaginas. It's not that I mind dicks. I just hate those like invasive parasite type situations like like that scene from the faculty at the very end when elijah wood's face almost gets burrowed well it really does get kind of burrowed into by those weird slugs that i cannot stand it that's terrifying think about what that has to say about consent is Mm, god not even it's not necessarily that they're wet or that it looks like a vagina or that it's whatever it's the idea that it's getting up close to you and forcing you to intake or to produce something you don't want to be having that close to you i mean it certainly does the job it's intimate it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and there's so much to say about alien the whole alien franchise and i absolutely want to do it justice and cover it again everything that we every movie that we've talked about deserves to be talked about in a way that is much more concise and descriptive than we were able to do it but for the sake of time and just for the sake of doing all the things we just kind of wanted to outline what was going on and how horror is really reflective and listening not only to just what's happening in greater society but horror has always kind of been a home for minoritized and marginalized populations and women were and are and continue to be to an extent part of that story So if we go back in time and just kind of do a summary, based on our discussion, it seems like the 1950s really just focused on World War II aftermath, in addition to like the Red Scare, the quote unquote threat of an outsider. In addition, the 1950s was the beginning of the civil rights movement. So not only fear of outsiders, but fear of fellow Americans themselves. Also, the birth of the American housewife stereotype as we know it. Moving into the 60s, we have an increased amount of men punishing women. The birth of toxic... I mean, I'm I'm sure it's not the Mm. birth of toxic masculinity. And again, we skipped the first 30 years of this list, y'all. So I'm sure toxic masculinity shows up from 1920 to 1950. But in terms of the incredible shrinking man and the fly, you have that loss of manhood and kind of... And with that, the rise of... Taking it out on women. (laughs) Taking it out on women, but also women becoming protagonists Mm. in Psycho. Well, not in Psycho. Kind of in Psycho and in The Birds and in Rosemary's Baby. And those Mm -hmm. are all in the 60s. Exactly. And speaking of Rosemary's Baby, we move into the 70s, where we really focus on a loss of bodily autonomy. And so, yeah, I think it's been really interesting to follow this sort of evolution. I think that, of course, there's no way we covered absolutely everything, but I think that I have learned a lot and I have very much loved to kind of take this generalized look at, you know, what's going on historically and how is society. And of course, you know, we're thinking of the culture industry. We're thinking of Hollywood. How is Hollywood depicting these things, which is something that can be talked about itself? Is Hollywood the most reliable narrator? But at the same time, it's kind of like the journal we have to look back on. And here we are. 
this was different, but I, again, just appreciated this look back. And we're going to continue to take this look from the 80s to the 2010s in a couple of weeks at some point. And that should be fun because we're moving into horror movies that came out when we were alive. Yes. So we'll be able to kind of talk about like what was going on and like from our point of view and things of that nature. We're looking forward to that, but we hope that you enjoyed this little history lesson. Again, not comprehensive, not complete, but just a little peek into the world of horror and history. Next week, we have a St. Patrick's Day episode planned. Yes, we do. It might not be what you think. Probably not what you think, actually. But we're going to focus a little bit on uh, some... Things that are green. Things that are green. Mm, I? <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, that musical note, T-Pain inspired. <laughs> email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmails.com, gmails at gmails.com. And also find us on Instagram at the same place, The Horrors Podcast. Till next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.